Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. Also, as, uh, as Batch mentioned, we are starting a, uh, a new sermon series today, uh, which we are going to be in uh, through the spring over the next eight weeks. Uh, a sermon series uh, that we've called Jesus Changes Everything, which is one of our core convictions as a church, right? That there's nothing about uh, either our own broken lives that Jesus can't make new, uh, nothing about uh, this broken and bent world that Jesus can't make straight. And so we're going to take uh, these eight weeks to look at the unique uh, mission and values uh, that we feel called to as a church, right? Our hope in this is that all of us would be able to understand uh, why it is we exist as a church. You know, we uh, go through, we're in the middle, we're actually finishing today uh, a new members class that we've been in for the last month. And you kind of go over some of this stuff when you join the church, you go over the, the mission and the values, but, uh, you know, we all go on with our lives, we have busy lives, we have jobs and responsibilities and all that, and those things can kind of uh, slip from our radar a bit. But our hope is uh, that we will have, as a church, a functional unity around our mission, right? Unity uh, as a church, you know, should be like the unity, uh, certainly it's a unity that's grounded in Christ. Uh, But it's also, you can think of it like the unity that a team needs as they take the field to play a sport, right? You need not only a unity that says we like each other and we're committed to being together, but we know what what we're doing here. We know the rules of the game. We know uh, our place, uh, our position that we're supposed to play. We know what the objects are that we're striving for together as a team. And so uh, this morning, we're going to start that uh, series with a look at uh, John chapter 12, starting in verse 20. So uh, if you're willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Our reading today is from John chapter 12, verses 20 through 26. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also." If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it uh, said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up 
from the earth will draw all people to myself. He said this uh, to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. This is God's word. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. You can be seated. You know, as we start uh, this series on our mission and values as a church, it's, it's worth putting this series into context and saying, well, why, uh, why do this now? And the reality is uh, that we all, right, not just our church, but the collective church, uh, the followers of Jesus uh, in the world, uh, along with our neighbors who are not followers of Jesus, we're coming off a heck of a year, aren't we? Uh, we're coming off of a, a fairly disorienting season in not only our national life, which it's certainly been that, but our global life. And it's been difficult uh, for the church at large to keep hold of its mission, right? Most churches that I'm aware of have really had one very simple mission statement for about the last year, uh, survive, <laughs> right? Continue to exist uh, throughout this. I, had a, I was talking to a good friend of mine who pastors in Pennsylvania, and he was telling me that he met with his elders uh, his board, uh, and they were talking about their mission and vision for the next year. And he said, you know what? I'll tell you what my personal mission is for the next year. It's still to be a pastor a year from now. And uh, by God's grace, he is still a pastor. He hasn't quit uh, over the course of that. But uh, it takes a toll on anyone. It takes a toll on any organization when your sole reason for being is to continue being, right? Uh, it. It's not enough of a reason to get up in the morning if your only goal is to not die, right? That over time, that's not sustainable. We understand why it's been that way, and I think we ought to have a lot of grace and compassion on ourselves and others. I think certainly God uh, looks on us with a great deal of grace and compassion, as we've all been in so many ways hanging on through this past year. But it is time at some point to look at one another and to look up and say, what are we here for? Right beyond just keeping the lights on and keeping the doors open and continuing to exist and get through COVID and all that it brings and, and all that this past year has brought socially and culturally, to say, what are we trying to, what kind of impact are we trying to have? Why do we get up in the morning? Why do I go to work every morning? In addition to this, I'm not sure if you saw, uh, but a couple of weeks ago, the most recent Gallup survey of American religious life uh, was published. Gallup is one of these organizations that uh, does nationwide surveys of all sorts of different aspects of American life. And one of the things that they do annually is a survey of American religious participation. And for the first time uh, in our nation's history, their survey showed that less than half of Americans are members of a church, mosque, or synagogue. Right? Less than half of Americans participate as members of an organized religious body. And so if you take that out, and obviously of those groups, uh, Christians are a majority in America, but if you take out uh, the Jewish and the Muslim uh, religious participation, that leaves Christian church membership at well under half 
uh, of American life. And this is down in 20 years ago. It, it, it's weird to think about it, but about 20 years ago, 1992. It's weird that that was that long ago. Um, but in 1992, that number was over 70%. So somehow over the last 20 years, American religious faith and participation in religious institutions has gone down to under half of our neighbors. And this means that the church has to reckon with our mission, right? It means that the church, uh, we can't simply exist for ongoing organizational survival. Uh, We can't simply exist uh, in a vying for cultural or political power. We have to learn to exist as missionary Christians in a post-Christian age, right? I have to learn what it means to live as a missionary pastor. We as a church have to learn what it means to live as a missionary church. We are involved in raising children, have to raise them to be missionary students and Christians, where we can't assume that our neighbors think and believe the way that we do. We have to, just as much as we would if we uh, up and move together across the world to the Middle East or to the Far East, we have to learn what it means to live together as a missionary church, to live together as witnesses to the truth of the gospel in our day, in our age. So, what does this mean for us? It means that here and now on a local level, is Christ Church in town, We have to look at what it means for us to be a faithful and fitting witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? What does it mean for us to to not only preach the gospel, which we hope we're going to talk about what that means, and hopefully that happens here on a regular basis, but what does it mean for us to embody the gospel, for us to live it in our lives together and to live it and to display it in our lives with our neighbors in such a way that we draw people towards Jesus, If you listen uh, to our neighbors when they talk about why faith in the church is down to such a degree, why membership in churches is down to such a degree, very often it has to do with the church's enmeshment in the ways of the world, right? Our fixation on power, our self-righteousness, our judgmentalism, right? We have to learn a different way to be the church in the world. Leslie Newbegin great theologian of mission, uh, observed this. He said, it's of crucial importance that we note that Jesus himself did not write a book. He chose, he called, and prepared a company of people. He entrusted to them his teaching, and he promised them the gift of the Spirit to guide them. Right now, certainly we have the word of Jesus. We believe that the word of God is preserved and spoken by the Spirit. But what Newbegin is getting at here is that Jesus himself didn't write a memoir, right? He didn't choose to write down his teaching. Instead, what he chose to do was to call a group of people to himself and to say, you will be my witnesses, right? You will testify to my reality to your neighbors in Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the earth, right? My written word will be dependent on you bearing witness to it by the power of the Spirit, Right, Jesus, in order to communicate to the world who he is and what he's like, planted the church. He formed the church. He sent his disciples. And so I want to look uh, briefly this morning at our mission statement. We're going to, I think, put it up on the screen here. 
Our mission as a church is to see and display the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus in our city. Our mission is to see and to display the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus in our city. Now, there's certain things, you know, listen, at a basic level, every church under heaven has the same mission, right? In, in, in a certain sense, we all exist to worship Jesus. Uh, in a certain sense, we all exist to make disciples, uh, teaching, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that Jesus commanded, right? So in a way, we have a common mission with every church in our city, in our state, and around the world. But what we try to do in our mission statement is to answer the question, What's unique about our particular way that we think about that mission, right? What's unique about how we understand our uh, particular calling, our particular way of worshiping and witnessing and making disciples? And we put it in these two actions, to see and to display Jesus. We want to see Jesus because we believe that we desperately need him, right? You're We want to see Jesus because we believe that every single one of us shows up every single Sunday with the same biggest need, which is to see Jesus again, to hear his voice again, to be reminded of the gospel again, right? Every one of us needs the good news. So we want to see Jesus because we believe that we need him. And we want to display Jesus because we believe that our world needs him, right? We believe that we miss out on something if we're just focused on pursuing Christ for ourselves. No, we want to see him as he is so that we can be reshaped and remade so that we display him, so that our world and our neighbors and our friends and our family can come to know the truth about who he is, that we can witness to the reality of who he is. And so this morning, we're going to focus particularly on this one action, seeing Jesus. Right Next week, we'll talk uh, over the next three weeks about displaying Jesus, displaying his truth, his goodness, and his beauty. But today we want to talk about seeing Jesus, right? The the words, the requests that are on the lips of these Greek seekers after God who come to Jesus' disciples and they have one request, sir, we want to see Jesus. It's our conviction that what these seekers are asking is for the deepest need of every single one of our hearts and the deepest desire of every human being is to see God. It's to know Him uh, as He is. Right? Of course, we believe that to see Jesus is to see God the Father. Jesus Himself says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Right? That to see Jesus, to to see who He is, to to come to know His teaching, to see how He loves, above all else is we're going to see, to see Him on the cross, is to know the reality of who God is and what His heart towards His human creatures is. To see Jesus is to know God. You know, we're going to have a passage that we look at every week in every one of these uh, sermons. Uh, but, you know, it's hard. You know, we've, uh, normally the way that we preach here is, uh, is we go sequentially through a book of the Bible. So as you go, you're kind of building the context for what we get. So it's worth noting a little bit of the context in which we find Jesus here, since we're not in a sermon series on the Gospel of John. So Jesus has shown up in Jerusalem, and it's the Passover. In the chapter immediately before, Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. And right after Jesus raises Lazarus, uh, the Jewish religious leaders, who, who through the course of the Gospel of John have been testing Jesus, 
have been evaluating Jesus, have been resisting Jesus. In the moment of Lazarus' resurrection, they resolve that they actually have to kill Jesus. They say that we can't allow him to continue living and performing wonders and teaching blasphemy. And so they begin to conspire to kill him. So in John chapter 11, though it is this incredible uh, show of Jesus' power in the resurrection of Lazarus, it's also the beginning of those series of events that, from, that humanly speaking, lead to his crucifixion, uh, that lead to his execution through the alliance of the Romans and the leaders of the Jews. And so uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a turning point in the gospel here where you've just heard that the Jewish religious leaders, the insiders and the people of God begin conspiring to kill Jesus. And then these Greeks, these outsiders come to Jesus with this simple request, we want to see Jesus. So what we start to see happening in the gospel is this reversal that all of the gospel accounts show that in the life of Jesus, insider and outsider get flipped on their head, right? The righteous are shown to be self-righteous and arrogant and prideful and boastful. In the sinners, those who are outcasts find themselves gathered in. Those who are cast down find themselves lifted up. The strong find themselves paralyzed, and the paralyzed find themselves resurrected and healed. So in the life of Jesus, there's this reversal that happens where the outsiders are invited in, and the insiders increasingly put themselves in opposition to Jesus. And it's not, of course, because Jesus has something against the insiders, right? It's the fact that his message was often offensive to them. Right? It's not that Jesus goes around kicking the religious leaders out. It's that a message that's the free offer of forgiveness, that's the, the present reality of the kingdom of God breaking out of uh, the human man-made systems of political and religious hierarchy, that when that starts breaking out, of course, those who are in power begin to bristle against it. And so these Greeks show up to Jerusalem, seeking after an experience. These are foreigners, seeking after an experience of Israel's God. So they come to Israel, and they come to Jerusalem at the highest holy day, at Passover. And what they would have found when they got there is that they would have been welcomed into the worship of God up to a point, right? They would have gone, most likely, to the temple, where all of the sacrifices and all of the celebrations of Passover would have been happening. And they would have found themselves as Greek visitors welcomed into the outer courtyard of the temple. They would have found themselves included up to a point in the worship of Israel's God. But then at that point, they would have run into a wall. They would have run into a point where they would have been told, you can come this far and no further. You can come into the court of the Gentiles but you can't come into the inner courts. You can't come into the courts that are reserved for God's covenant people. You certainly can't come into the presence of God himself where the priests worship and where the sacrifices are made. So they would have been invited in, but then they would have run into a wall. And so maybe it's after running into that wall that they come to Jesus and say, look, if we can't get to the presence of God that way, we want to see Jesus. We want to see this one who's inviting outsiders to become insiders. We want to come to this one who, who, who we learn later in the Apostle Paul came to tear down the dividing wall 
of hostility that separated Jew from Gentile, that separated outsider from insider. And so they come with the request, we want to see Jesus. And I love the little game of telephone that they play, right? They go to Philip, Philip goes to Andrew, and Andrew and Philip go to Jesus. And they say, there's these guys here, and they want to see Jesus. They want to see Jesus. It's our belief that seeing Jesus is the greatest need for both the religious insider and the religious outsider. We believe that every Sunday morning, the longtime Christian who's been following Jesus for decades and the beat-up, doubting person or the person who comes in to their first church service ever, the person who comes because they want to see Jesus, that we all show up with the same deepest need. We all need to see him as he really is. I was looking back over some notes uh, from some talks that I gave when I was trying. So at the beginning of a church plant, uh, we had a series of meetings. We met uh, over in the junior, uh, junior League building in Riverside. I don't know if it, some of y'all were there for those meetings. And we began to start talking about what kind of church we dreamt of being, right? We, we had no idea really what we were getting into at the time. Um, but I was standing up there trying to convince literally anyone uh, to come and be a part of this thing, right? To come and say, hey, let's leave your church. Let's leave these, you know, leave where you are and let's come out and start something new. And I was looking at some of the notes of what we talked about when we dreamt of being the church that, that we are. And one of the ways that we talked about it, I remember once, one of these Sunday afternoons, we talked about uh, the parable of the prodigal son, Right? You know the story well, most likely, the, the story of the, the younger brother who was rebellious and left the father's house, spent his inheritance on wild living and came to a place of absolute bankruptcy where he was, uh, had, a, had a lowly job serving a slop to pigs and found himself eating out of the pig's trough and decided to go home to the father and say, take me back in as a hired servant. And then he had his self-righteous older brother Right, The brother that looked down on him, the brother that, that served the father every day of his life. Right? The older brother that may have had something to do with why the younger brother found it to be such a miserable place to live. And so the story of the, of the prodigal son ends, if you remember that story, the father kills the fatted calf, he throws a great big party for his departed son who's returned, and the older brother is sulking out in the shadows, saying, you never give me anything. Right? And we said that one of our dreams of a church was that we would be a church where younger brothers and older brothers come back to the Father's house to join the party. Right? That we would be a place where people who, who've been running away from God and who experience themselves to be far from Him can come home and find nothing but welcome and extravagant joy that they've come home. And a place where folks who've been religious their whole lives, people who've been self-righteous, people who've been burnt out and worn out by religious Christianity could join the party, could lay down our pride and our self-righteousness, and could come to the Father's house and celebrate His grace and His goodness. And by God's grace, we've seen this happen in our church. Certainly, we want to see it happen more and more, but we've seen God make a family out of younger brothers and older brothers. We've seen God create a family of people who come from different paths, different walks, 
to both end up at the Father's table. And it's a beautiful thing. We believe, as I've said probably a dozen times already, that we need to see Jesus. And that's true every Sunday of the pastor and of the elders, uh, all the way to the toddler in the nursery. We all have the same biggest need. And so that's how we evaluate everything that we try to do as a church, right? You're, you're, the way you evaluate a sermon here, I hesitate to even encourage you to evaluate sermons, but the way you should do it is not Dave sounded smart today or I learned something today I'd never heard today. The way you ought to evaluate a sermon is did I see Jesus today? Did I hear his voice urging me back to the Father? Did I find grace for my sin? Did I find hope for my hopelessness? Did I find faith for my doubt? We all need Jesus every single Sunday. It's what, you know, when we go to pick children's curriculum for what our toddlers, for what our grade schoolers are going to be learning, we're not teaching them, hopefully, just how to be good little boys and girls who behave well at dinner tables. But we're teaching them how to see Jesus how to find his grace because they have parents and teachers and pastors and elders who need Jesus. And so they're learning, hopefully, to see the church as a place of grace and love and welcome. For them, we need to see Jesus. And Jesus himself tells us here where we see him most clearly. He says, when I am lifted up, in verse 32, I will draw all people to myself. Right? It's when I'm lifted up. And what's he meaning here? He's, it, it, the, uh, John tells us that he's telling them what kind of death he is going to die. Right? When we hear about Jesus lifted up, we think of his glory. Right? Maybe you think of the resurrection. Maybe you think of the ascension. You think of uh, Jesus being exalted to his throne. But Jesus says, no, no, my throne, the way to my throne, the way to my way up, my way of being lifted up is going to look very differently than that. It's going to be me lifted up on the cross to where if you want to see what Jesus is like, if you want to see his love, if you want to see him, if you want to see the Father, he says, look to the cross. Look at my love spread for you there. Jesus tells us in verse 31 that now is the time for the judgment of this world. Right? What he's saying is that on my cross, when I'm lifted up, I am defeating the powers of this world. When I'm lifted up, it is my victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil. When I'm lifted up, it really is my victory over this world and my setting of all things right. But it opens up this interim, doesn't it? Where, where, where all of the forces of evil have been defeated. And yet then he calls us. In the midst of that interim, in the midst between the, the moment when evil is defeated on the cross... In the moment when he comes to set all things right, when we're called to follow him, when we're called to share his light in a dark world, to live, as he says, as sons of light. And so this is what we believe happens when we see Jesus. Right? When we come to Jesus and we see Jesus, two, uh, two things, I think, in this passage happen. We worship Jesus. Right? To see Jesus is to worship him. And we're transformed so that we begin to display Jesus in the world. He draws us to himself to worship him. That's what he means in verse 32 when he says, when I'm lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. Right? That when I'm lifted up, I will draw people to me and worship. When I'm lifted up, 
people will move towards me in faith and in worship and in love. When I'm lifted up, uh, what happens earlier in chapter 12 will begin to happen all over the world. What happens at the beginning of chapter 12 is Mary, the sister of Lazarus who is raised from the dead, comes and falls at Jesus' feet and she pours out her perfume on his feet in an act of worship. She begins to, to celebrate Jesus, to pour out her joy and her gratitude and her love. And that's what happens when we see Jesus. When we see him as he really is, when we experience his grace, as we respond to him in worship. Jonathan Edwards, a Puritan theologian, has said that religious people relate to God instrumentally. That means that religious people approach God instrumentally for what he can give them. Right? They pray to Jesus because of what Jesus might give them. Jesus, I need a better job. Jesus, I want to get married. Jesus, I want to get healthy. But people who've been gripped by the gospel worship God aesthetically. They worship him because he's beautiful. They're drawn to Jesus because they see the beauty of who he is and what he offers. They're drawn to Jesus because their, their hearts are captured by his beauty and his goodness. And they run to him like Mary in worship. And so uh, the fuel for our worship is the beauty of Jesus. It's us seeing Jesus. And then when we see Jesus, we're transformed uh, to the point that we begin to display him in our lives. This is actually just written all over this passage. You'll look at two places. First, Jesus says this strange thing that none of the disciples uh, want to believe until it becomes obvious. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He's talking here about his death, his falling into the earth in order to bear new fruit. And he follows that by saying, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. What he's saying is, my way of the cross is going to become your way of life. My way of love is going to become your calling in this life. If you're going to follow me, you're going to be where I am. And where I am is on the path of self-giving love. It's on the path of sacrifice. It's on the path of laying down my life for the life of the world. And then he finishes this passage that we just looked at. The light is among you for a little while longer, verse 35. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Learn from him how to live in the light so that you can become children of light, people who in the midst of a dark world shed the light of Jesus and invite others into it. Madeline Lengel uh, is a Christian writer. Uh, she wrote uh, the amazing books, A Wrinkle in Time, an amazing book that became a really mediocre movie with Oprah in it. Um, but it's called A Wrinkle in Time. She wrote a number of other books. And she wrote a, a book that's a reflection on writing and why, as a Christian, she would engage in fiction writing as a career. And this is what she wrote, uh, among other things. We draw people to Christ not by loudly discrediting what they believe or by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, 
but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. Showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. That's our hope as a church, is that we together uh, would bear a light so lovely, uh, a reflection of the beauty of Jesus so bright, that our neighbors and our friends and all who peer in would say, I want to know where that light comes from. I want to warm myself and find light by that light. Let's pray that the Lord would make it so. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge that we walk through an often dark world. Uh, We acknowledge, of course, that the darkness of our world isn't just out there, but it's in here. It's in our own hearts. It's in our own minds. It's in our own relationships. Lord, we want to be children of light. Lord, you tell us that your church uh, is a city on a hill made to shine the light of your kingdom on a dark world, that we are uh, a light not meant to be hidden. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray that by the power of your spirit, you would cause our light to grow. Lord, that in seeing you and seeing all of your glory and goodness and beauty and grace, that you would help us to display you in our city, that we would display your glory and your grace for generations. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.